This is the Silver Star Bible School 2009. Our speaker is Brother Ken Stiles, whose theme for the week is The Blessing of Forgiveness. This is his third class entitled Forgiveness as Taught by the Son, and the reading was Daniel 9, verses 1 to 23. Thank you, Brother Andrew, and good morning, everyone. We will begin with a review, quickly as it were, of uh, some of the points we discussed yesterday in which the righteous requirements for sinful man were identified. Point number one is that God forgives because of his character to achieve his eternal purpose and to include forgiven sins in the memorial name. So the forgiveness of God is rooted in each of these three aspects, his character, his eternal purpose, and his memorial name. When we learn to forgive one another as a reflection of those three components, because we are beginning to develop God's character in our character, as Brother Andrew mentioned in his prayer, and because we recognize that when someone sins against us, God is still at work in the life of that person to include them in his eternal purpose. And we need to have that that perspective upon that brother or sister who has caused an offense for us. And when we realize that God is developing them to be part of his future name, when he will be revealed in a host of mighty ones, then we can learn to forgive one another on the same righteous basis that God forgives us. Not that we are in God's position or his place. We'll see in a subsequent class. When God forgives a person, there is a difference in which how we forgive the person. Because God can know their mind and whether or not they're genuine. But when we begin to forgive each other, not because we're commanded to, and we have to because if we don't, we won't be forgiven ourselves. That's where we start out. That's how it's intended that we start out. Just as it's intended that we start out with a great deal of fear of God and just a little bit of love. And then over time we grow to realize that the true fear of Yahweh is to love Him and to respect, respect him above all else in our life. We start out forgiving one another as young people, knowing that if we don't forgive one another, we won't be forgiven ourselves, but that it's then intended that we will come to mature in our understanding and realize to forgive each other as God forgives us includes these three aspects. We saw yesterday in Acts 3 that the promise to Abraham that his seed would be a blessing to all families of the earth found its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Back in Genesis 12, God was promising to Abraham, you will have a seed in which all families of the earth will be blessed. And Acts 3 defines what that blessing is. They will find the wonderful provision for the forgiveness of their sins in your seed. And he will teach them to turn from sin and to seek after righteousness. Point number four, it is not participation in a ritual that brings forgiveness. The ritual is intended to remind us of the righteous basis upon which God forgives us and the righteous requirements he has established for our sins to be forgiven. So when we speak of the righteous basis, that's from class one. That's God's character and his purpose and his name. The righteous requirements come from class two. The five requirements that we, uh, we looked at yesterday that a sinful man must uphold to be forgiven. The confession, the repentance, the conversion. 
those three are equally applicable either to an unbaptized sinner who has now come to God seeking to be baptized in order to have his or her sins forgiven. And when we spoke yesterday of an unbaptized sinner, that's who we were speaking of in respect to Acts 3. Someone who came to see that they needed to make a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are also, as we saw at the end of the class yesterday, two additional components, two additional requirements. We need to be walking in the light, practicing righteousness, as John describes it in his first epistle. And we need to be forgiving others if we want our sins to be forgiven. Just an update on some of the questions that we posed in our first class. The first question, why does God forgive us? Hopefully we're beginning to see that he forgives us to lead us away from sin and back to righteousness. He forgives us not just to wipe our slate clean, but to teach us to forsake the way of sin. What did Moses have to learn about forgiveness following the events of Exodus 32? Well, there was quite a bit that Moses had to learn. And that was revealed to him in chapter 33 and 34, beginning with the fact that forgiveness is not extended on the basis of one man offering up his eternal life, but it's extended on the basis of God's moral glory his character that he is looking to develop in each of us. How are the character of God, the eternal purpose, the memorial name and forgiveness all related? Again, hopefully some of this is now beginning to come into focus. the The only way God can accomplish his eternal purpose is to willingly and lovingly forgive those who he is transforming from being sons and daughters of Satan sons and daughters of Belial, to becoming sons and daughters of his, who learn to walk after the light, not after the flesh. In Nehemiah 9, why does Ezra cite the incidents of Exodus 32 and Numbers 14? Exodus 32 being the incident that connects forgiveness with God's character, and Numbers 14 being the incident connecting forgiveness with God's eternal purpose. Why does he cite those in his appeal to the nation? to make a lifelong covenant to become God's servants. And he did so in order to teach the people about forgiveness. The wall had been built up until chapter 5 and 6 in Nehemiah, and then they had gathered to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 8. But they were still in need of making a covenant with God. And so chapter 9 shows how a sinful nation can appeal to God with their confession and mourning and repentance coupled with the principles of the basis of God's forgiveness. And it's not a coincidence that Ezra cites these two grievous sins out of the the Old Testament, out of the book of Exodus and and Numbers, to show despite the enormity of the sin, God was still willing to forgive the nation. And they could now be part of that memorial name. We've seen the five righteous principles or requirements that we are suggesting God is looking to be fulfilled in a person's life before he can righteously extend forgiveness to us. And hopefully we're seeing as well that the term converted in Scripture doesn't just apply to an unbaptized individual seeking baptism and seeking to make a commitment to God. We saw in James 5 at verse 19 and 20, each of us can help the other be converted and to turn from their erring ways, James says. So conversion is the concept, remember, of making a change in the direction of your life. 
It is intended to happen at the life of a person at the point of baptism, and it can happen as well subsequent any time sin has overwhelmed a person and how they are living. We find it helpful to um, review Old Testament characters. But I, I tell you what, before we go on to that, let's just pick up again just one final thought that we saw from, uh, from yesterday's class. Remember, we finished with those last two components of the need to walk in the light and the need to forgive one another. And we finished rather quickly identifying the wisdom behind God establishing those two requirements. And that being, if I come to God and ask for him to forgive my sins, and I am not committed to walking in the light, which is a righteous requirement on his part before he will forgive me, and he forgives me while I walk in darkness, all he's doing is perpetuating my walk in darkness. So it is wise on God's part, it is just, it is righteous on his part, to have a requirement that disciples be walking in the light for us to be forgiven. Similarly, we saw the wisdom of asking us to forgive one another, or we will not be forgiven, because God cannot develop in me the character of mercy and compassion. If I come to him and ask him to forgive me, and I'm not willing to show mercy and compassion to those who may sin against me, so there is wisdom in God establishing each of these righteous requirements. Because in forgiving me and requiring me to fulfill or uphold these five righteous requirements, what God is trying to do is lead me away from sin. Now we need to be careful here in our explanation of how obedience relates to forgiveness. We are not saying that if a person meets those five requirements, they have earned forgiveness. And they can now appear before God and say, God, you owe me forgiveness because I have met the five righteous requirements. We don't earn forgiveness by confessing our sins, by repenting, by forsaking sin, or walking in the light, or by forgiving others. We need to fulfill all five of those requirements to be forgiven. But it is wrong to conclude that because we fulfill those, somehow we have now earned the right to be forgiven. It's an important distinction to keep in mind. We are not earning our obedience. Forgiveness cannot be earned. Forgiveness is extended by God because he is merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abundant in loving-kindness and faithfulness that is the basis upon which he forgives us and that coupled with the fact that his son gave himself in a life of perfect obedience and laid down his life that we might be forgiven that too is the righteous basis upon which God forgives us we can never earn the forgiveness but it is righteous of God to require that we comply with his righteous requirements before he extends his mercy to us. And unless we fulfill those righteous requirements that God has determined are necessary, he rightly will not extend his forgiveness. 
So don't make the mistake of thinking it's all of mercy and it's all of grace. It is not. This is where the Protestant churches have it wrong. There has to be a righteous basis in order for God to forgive us. Grace and mercy alone will not lead to a person being forgiven and they won't lead to a person's salvation. There is a part we must play. God has identified what the righteous requirements are. And for those in Israel who complied with those righteous requirements, God was pleased and willing and delighted to forgive them. But for the rebels who refused to comply with those righteous requirements, he would by no means clear the guilty. Because that is the character of our God, and it's a righteous character. So that the, re the, the requirements of confession and repentance and, and changing our walk with respect to specific sins and the two additional requirements with respect to our general discipleship in which we must be walking in the light and we must be forgiving others are all necessary. Hopefully that is, uh, that is fairly clear and we don't want to be confused. We can't earn our forgiveness on the one hand, but it is appropriate, it is righteous that God require of us that we meet his requirements. For him to extend forgiveness to a person who is not committed to walking in the light would be to ask God to compromise his righteous character. And he won't do that. To ask God to forgive me if I am unwilling to forgive my brother who sins against me would be asking God to compromise his righteous character. And he won't do that. It's no difference really from the righteous basis upon which God saves a, a disciple. When a person is baptized and then lives a life of obedience, he doesn't earn his salvation. Salvation is still of mercy and grace because God is long-suffering and full of loving kindness and truth. But a righteous basis needs to exist in that person's life before God can save them. And in its simplest terms, that righteous basis means the person has devoted himself or herself to developing the mind and the life of Christ in their life and replacing their character with the character of Christ. And when a person devotes themselves to that, they have not earned salvation. But they have fulfilled what God requires. And there is now a righteous basis to take that sinful saint and to grant them immortality, not because they have earned it by their obedience, but because they have devoted themselves and their entire life to becoming like their Lord and Master. Turn with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 9. As we say, we like to learn to use um, the examples of faithful men and women, in the Old Testament especially, who, who can provide uh, helpful instruction regarding the, the principles of forgiveness. They help solidify the principles by providing the examples of what the principles look like when they are, are put into action. And Daniel and his prayer in chapter 9 is one such example. This is the prayer of a 90-year-old man who understands sin from God's perspective. Just how grievous it is in God's sight and just how important forgiveness is before man can approach God with his petitions. We know the background. Israel has been in captivity for nigh 70 years. Daniel has determined by his study of Jeremiah's prophecy that the end of the captivity period is approaching. 
Daniel isn't content to sit and wait and to watch God fulfill his prophesied word. So he prays earnestly in chapter 9, from the bottom of his heart, as we saw read this morning, in appealing to God. But the focus of Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 is not about appealing to God to end the captivity and to send the Jews back to the land. The focus of his prayer is about forgiveness. And it begins with Daniel making confession for his own sins. There is no sin of Daniel recorded in scripture. Just the opposite. He is portrayed as being a righteous individual. And faithful obedience is described in the events of his life. These are what is emphasized. But in his prayer... He leaves little doubt that he struggled under sin as we all do. At least 12 times in this prayer, he will link himself with the sins of the people. We have sinned. We have rebelled. We have not obeyed are repeated throughout. And he isn't just reciting meaningless words as if they applied to the people and not to himself. There is nothing righteous about a person disingenuously taking on the sins of others through substitution. That is not what Daniel is doing in this chapter and in this prayer. He is genuine in confessing his sins before God. And he includes himself in the sins of the people. In verse 20 he says, While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin." and the sin of my people Israel. He rightly reflects the demeanor of a repentant sinner in verse 3, when he fasts and clothes himself in sackcloth and ashes. The sackcloth and ashes reflecting the spirit of mourning and contrition, the spirit of Psalm 51. He understood the righteous requirements surrounding forgiveness. In verse 4, he speaks of confession, In verse 5, he emphasizes the enormity of his sin and and the sin that has been committed. We have sinned, he says, and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and we have rebelled. He understood the important connection between forgiveness and obedience, the need for a person to be walking in the light. Because verse 4 goes on to say how God keeps covenant and mercy to them that love him and obey him and keep his commandments. Daniel understood the fact that we can't approach God asking for forgiveness if we are not walking in the light, if we are not practicing righteousness. And that means if we have been in a period of our, in our life when we have been walking in darkness and we need to be converted, we need to change. It does not mean that if we have been walking in darkness, there is no hope for us. But what it does mean is if we are appearing, appealing to God to be forgiven, then God has an expectation that we will change in how we're living. And if we ask for forgiveness and we keep walking in darkness, we cannot righteously expect God to compromise his character and his principles to extend that forgiveness. In verse 13, he speaks of the need for Israel to turn from their iniquity. See, these righteous requirements are here in his prayer. He recognized the need to repudiate the way of sin and to turn back to God and to walk in a new direction. In fact, when you look at Daniel's prayer, 
and you look at the foundation from whence it arises, there are strong links and connections back to the prayer of Solomon at the time the temple was dedicated. In verse 47 of 1 Kings 8, Solomon is guided by the Holy Spirit in his thoughts. And, and notice how he closely links the temple with forgiveness. Yet if they bethink themselves in the land, whether they were carried captives, and repent and make supplication unto thee in the land of them that carried them captives, saying, We have sinned and have done perversely, we have committed wickedness. And you trace those three words through as we've done on the screen with the three words that Daniel quotes in his prayer. And that's where Daniel's mind is. He's back in the days of Solomon. At the point in which the temple was dedicated, it was not a celebration of how great this building is and how great these people are who have built this wonderful temple to their God. On the day of dedication of the temple, Solomon chose wisely to focus on the fact that this building in which we will worship you, Yahweh, is a building connected with forgiveness. Because that is our greatest need. So when thy people err and they turn back to you, hear thou in heaven and forgive. That was the message that day. If you had listened to the words of Solomon and had been in attendance. He could foresee Israel's future rebellion and being led into captivity. And the need to be forgiven in captivity and repenting. His prayer, this is Solomon's prayer, underscores how the principles of forgiveness were established at the time of the temple's dedication. God heard Solomon's prayer, as we know, and the righteous principles regarding forgiveness that Solomon had been extolling. And God answered Solomon's prayer in a vote of approval by sending fire out of heaven to consume the sacrifices. So that Daniel and Solomon's prayer and its focus on forgiveness recognized the nation in Daniel's day. See, Daniel recognized in Daniel 9 that we stand in the very spot that Solomon had spoken of back in chapter 8, verse 47 of 1 Kings 8. This is where we are. And he now, now appeals to the Lord that he will intervene on the basis of the confession of their sin in order to bring them back to the land a forgiven people. This is the same righteous basis, the same righteous principles we need to be teaching our children and our young people so that when they find themselves in the land of captivity to sin, in which we may or may not know that they're there, they will know that that's where they stand and that they need to come back to the land of righteousness. They need to return to the ways of God. And the way to return is by confession and repentance and conversion and pleading with God to intervene in their life so that they may find their way back home. There's another principle, another point that we don't want to miss before we leave Daniel's prayer, and that's in verses 7 to 9. Notice how he will contrast what belongs to God and what belongs to man. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces is at this day. To the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and unto all Israel that are near and that are far off. 
through all the countries whither thou hast driven them, because of their trespass that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To, thee, to the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against him. So Daniel is telling us, to God belongs righteousness and mercies and forgiveness. To man belongs confusion of face, shame, in other words, because of our transgressions and guilt and rebellion. Man has no claim, no right to forgiveness. It only occurs because of God's mercy. And this is the mind of a 90-year-old man who has devoted himself to serving his God. And he is still speaking of the need to confess his sins in his prayer before God. His wisdom and his integrity are beyond question. Two different empires have examined his character and his integrity and his wisdom and have concluded that that man should be elevated to rule the empire. That is the character that is portrayed of Daniel as we know in his book. He has led a faithful and obedient life. And we know that because Ezekiel, a contemporary of Daniel, calls him a righteous man in Ezekiel chapter 14 at verse 14 and verse 20 and places Daniel while he is still living in the same category as Noah and Job. So there is Ezekiel by the river Kibar guided by the Spirit declaring the righteousness of Daniel. And there is Daniel in his prayer declaring the righteousness of God and confessing his own sinfulness and pleading with God to forgive him. The truth of the matter is that it was God's righteousness that was being developed in Daniel's character, just as it was God's righteousness being developed in the character of Job and Noah. But Daniel maintained a clear picture in his mind, even at the age of 90, and despite everything he had been through, he never lost sight of this picture of what belongs to God and what belongs to man. To God belongs righteousness. To man belongs sin. There is nothing righteous about failing to confess our sins, which is why a 90-year-old man, before he will make his petition to God for God to send his people back to the land, begins by confessing his sins and pleading for God's mercy. There is nothing righteous about presuming upon God's grace. Just as Jesus declared from the cross that God is right, the flesh must be cut off before we can pursue righteousness. So Daniel is declaring that principle in his prayer. I am a sinful God and I am in need of your mercy. Whenever we get this picture of what belongs to God and what belongs to man out of focus, we end up in trouble. The reason Daniel could pray and be heard, as it says in verses 20 to 23, and the angel Gabriel was sent to him, is because he had this picture right in his mind. He never lost sight of it. We won't take the time, but Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 1 follows the exact same pattern as Daniel 9. A man who was in dire need 
of pleading with God to intervene to save his people begins his prayer to God and his petition. Not that God will intervene to save his people, he begins with a confession of his own sins and the sins of his people. And he acknowledges the need to be walking in the light and speaks of the need for obedience and declares how they had been acting corruptly and speaks of the need for the scattered nation to turn back to God. Well, we've already looked at the five specific righteous requirements for forgiveness that God expects man to uphold before forgiveness can be extended. One of the requirements that almost goes without saying, it's not really a, a, an aspect of our focus on forgiveness this week, but it's something that needs to be mentioned, is that there is a big, much bigger righteous requirement, and that is that we be in Christ, that we have made a commitment to become lifelong servants to God in order to have our sins forgiven. And why this is a specific requirement deals with the, uh, the principles that we're already familiar with, but again, we will leave for a different study. The fact that God can righteously save us through the death of a son who came and bore our nature and committed himself to his Father's will, and in so doing was able to open a door out of the way of death. Just one quotation from Brother Roberts from the blood of Christ, identifying the need for us to associate ourselves with the Savior. If you will recognize your position, repent and come under that man's wing, Brother Roberts writes, right, speaking from God's perspective, I will receive you back to favor and forgive you. My righteousness has been declared in him. I have crowned him with everlasting days. Because he loved righteousness and hated iniquity and was obedient unto death, I have crowned him with eternal life. It is in him for you if you will submit and believe in him and put on his name, which is a confession that you have no name of your own that will stand. Obey his commandments and I will receive you and forgive you for the sake of for his sake, and ye shall be my sons and daughters. So that when a person puts on Christ, as we know by faith, and makes Christ his life, and takes on his name, and devotes himself to developing the character of Christ, and, take, and takes on his affections, and his commands, his everything, then God can righteously forgive the individual through Christ's saving work because they have committed themselves to becoming like their master, including the need, as we know, to crucify the flesh and to live instead unto righteousness and devoting themselves to serving others. Brother Roberts goes on to contrast the, the truth regarding Christ's representative sacrifice and the substitutionary teaching of the churches. And we'll just spend a minute to point out it is beneficial to differentiate between the two teachings. The churches do not teach forgiveness. Substitution does not teach that God forgives. Instead, they teach that Christ paid a debt owed to God for our sins. And in their teaching, they liken our sins to this debt, wrongly interpreting the parable of the unforgiving creditor. And they declare that our sins are like a debt, a great debt that we owe to God and that we can't pay. So God takes our debt... All our sins, which are enormous, 
And he places them on Christ so that when Christ died, he paid off all our debts. Among the many wrong teachings that substitution fosters, one of those is that you can't pay a debt and forgive a person at the same time. If you were to go to a local restaurant in the city and incur a tab for a meal, a debt to the owner of the restaurant, and someone were to come along and pay your tab, you wouldn't say the owner, out of his forbearance and kindness, because he was merciful and gracious and long-suffering, forgave your debt. He didn't. Somebody else paid your debt. God forgives. He doesn't collect debts. And the reason this is important for us is when we apply it to the situation in which someone has sinned against us, we should not be looking to exact a payment from them before we're willing to forgive them. Because God's forgiveness does not exact payment of a debt. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is the, the result of mercy and grace, grace and kindness. If we're looking to exact a price, then it isn't forgiveness that we're practicing. It is debt repayment. Jesus was a representative, as we know, not a substitute. A substitute lives the principles, lays down his life, fulfills the righteous requirements, and everyone else passively benefits from that sacrifice. A representative, however, lives the principles, lays down his life, fulfills the righteous requirements, and all who follow him recognize the need for they themselves to fully, to fully devote themselves to living the principles, the same principles as the master, to laying down their life and fulfilling the righteous requirements. And when a disciple does this and makes a commitment in their life to follow the Master, God can righteously forgive him or her for Jesus' sake, in Jesus' name, because the disciple has taken on the name and the character and the love and the affections of their Lord. The loving and forgiving character of God, sorry, of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a reflection of the loving and forgiving character of his Father. It's why when Christ was born and God's moral character was eventually developed in him, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ was a very forgiving person. Because when mercy and grace and long-suffering and loving-kindness and truth are being perfectly manifested in his character. It is not surprising that the Lord Jesus Christ had the ability to forgive sins because that is what this character does. Jesus takes us or teaches us a great deal about forgiveness in the Gospels. In his three and a half year ministry, he teaches us that we should love our enemies, that we should bless them that curse us, that we should do good to them that hate us, 
that we should turn the other cheek and pray for them which despitefully use or persecute us. You can't love your enemies unless you have already forgiven them. Whatever it is they have done to you. You can't pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you if you're retaining anger and evil thoughts in your heart toward them. But the single most significant lesson that the Lord teaches us about forgiveness, He teaches us from the cross. He has been badgered and beaten and spit upon before the Sanhedrin. He has been mocked before Herod and his men. He has been scourged by Pilate likely involving the, the leather whip with the embedded pieces of metal stone. He's been mocked again by the band of soldiers and the Praetorium Guard. He's been plated with a, a crown of thorns. He's been shamed and ridiculed by all who were present that day on the way to Golgotha. And finally, he has been laid on a cross with massive nails driven, first into his hands and then into his feet. And then the cross has been lifted up and and place dropped into a hole in the ground and the wedges of wood are hammered into place to steady and support it, adding further to the excruciating pain that the Lord endured. And there he is on the cross, beaten and tortured and humiliated and scorned and his body mangled. And the very first words recorded out of his lips is a plea and a prayer for his father to forgive those who have done this to him. That prayer, brethren and sisters, that event sets the standard for forgiveness. He's teaching us about forgiveness from the cross. He's teaching us about the character of our God, about what love is and does. He's teaching us that when our brother or sister sins against us, forgive them. Full stop. Forgive them. That's what he's teaching us. And it cuts through all of the justification that we can create in our minds as to why we don't need to. Forgive them, he says. If Jesus could forgive those who had put him in this situation and who had inflicted this kind of pain and suffering and mental anguish and humiliation and shame and slander and false accusation and ridicule and mocking, if they could do all of this, and the Lord Jesus Christ could still forgive them from the heart, there isn't a single situation in my life that will ever, ever measure up to the situation that he faced that day. No one will ever be able to do to me what was done to the Lord that day. And if he could forgive all those who sinned against him, how can I possibly not forgive anything, everything 
under any circumstance that is committed against me. He utters the words in the midst of what must have been searing agony, a kind we cannot imagine. But there is no bitterness on his part, even under the extremity of pain. He is in intense agony, and he is still seeking to save those who are lost. And some will be saved, because we know in the book of Acts, some will be converted. But do you see where his mind is in the midst of the sin that is being committed against him? His mind is on saving those who are lost. Remember, that's why God forgives to save those who are lost. So he is asking the Father to forgive the soldiers and the people and the leaders and all who had contributed to his death. We know that none of them fully understood what they were doing by the words of, of Peter in Acts 3, verse 17, and, and how Paul comments on that in, uh, in Acts 13, verse 27. There is the parable of the vineyard and the wicked husbandmen, but the, the words of Peter and Paul point out to us that there was not full understanding of what was being done that day. And Jesus prays that his Father would look with mercy upon those who are crucifying him and hold nothing against them. They are in the midst of the sin the midst of the sin that they are committing against him. And there he is in the midst of his suffering. There in the act of crucifying him and from the cross, out of compassion, he prays for their forgiveness. Do you see why we say this is the standard we need to follow? This is the model, the example we need to get a hold of. He is forgiving them while they are sinning against him. An incredible example of what forgiveness will bring us to. In the very midst of their sin against him, he is asking for them to be forgiven. Only the character of Exodus 34, reflecting the moral glory of God, could ask for forgiveness for those who were putting him to death while he was dying. We have seen how wonderfully the Father forgave Israel time and again, despite their repeated sins. Now we are seeing from the cross what that forgiving character looks like when it is manifested in the Son. He was without doubt the Word and the character of God manifested in the flesh, in whom the Father was well pleased. This is why our understanding of what forgiveness looks like in our interactions with each other is so important. And that understanding begins with the cross. The very character we are called upon to develop in our lives, even under extreme circumstances, was willing to forgive those who were sinning against them. So it doesn't matter not that it isn't important and not that it isn't painful, but in the end it doesn't matter how difficult one who has sinned against me makes my life. It doesn't matter what hurt they have caused me or their failure to take responsibility for their actions. It doesn't matter if they have apologized and repented or not. It matters between they and God. 
And we need to have that distinction. And this is where our forgiveness of each other differentiates between God's forgiveness of one another. But Jesus doesn't wait for them to apologize. He doesn't wait for them to repent. He's in the last few moments of his life. There is a great evil that is unleashed when one person sins against another. And he won't let that evil overwhelm him. So when I look at the humiliation and the pain that others cause me, and the suffering that they inflict upon me, whether they do it willingly or unwillingly, and the public shame and the slander and the false accusation and the mental anguish, and I take everything that is done against me, and I place it alongside of what was done against my Lord, the issue becomes crystal clear. How dare I speak of withholding my forgiveness when my Lord could forgive those who put him to death? There is no other righteous way to respond when someone has mistreated us. The alternative to forgiveness will likely destroy us. Because when that evil spirit is unleashed, and we're not talking about the evil spirit associated with the false teaching of devils and demons. It's the kind of evil spirit that disrupts relationships, that creates ill will and hard feelings, that leads to grudges, even to hatred. If we show the love of Christ and forgive the person immediately, you empty the situation of the evil. And as Peter says, we cover a multitude of sins. Because forgiveness will take our mind off of ourself and how we have been wronged and redirect our thoughts to God. Jesus holds no grudge as he hangs from the cross. There is no ill will. There is no hard feelings. There is no hatred. There had been plenty of evil spirit unleashed against him that day by the repeated mistreatment that he suffered. But his prayer to his Father redirects his mind and his thoughts to God, not how he had been wronged. So there was no grudge, there was no opportunity or provision for any grudge seeds to be sown in his heart. When we forgive someone immediately, it eliminates the grudge from ever developing. It eliminates the seeds from ever having the possibility of being sown. It's worth noting that Jesus did not stoically ignore the revilers, the slanderers, the false accusation. In 1 Peter 2, verse 23, he forgave his distractors and he left the matter to God. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but considered, committed himself to him that judges righteously. Quoting again and finishing with a quote from Brother Roberts, Christ was a man of sorrow through the opposition of evil men. But as for his attitude to them, he prayed for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Righteous men suffer at the hands of evil men, but they have none of the vindictive feelings that evil men bear to one another. They do not nurse anger. They do not plot revenge. 
They are ready even to do them a good turn if they get the opportunity. They leave them entirely in God's hands.